0: discover more compassionate
1: relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this
2: planet?
0: There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that.
1: This power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast. It is Mexi, and today I am talking with two incredible friends and comrades that I just have the utmost respect for Abby Martin and Mike Prisner of The Empire Files. A couple of years ago in Toronto, I helped to organize a screening of their first documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, which is absolutely incredible. It is such a powerful powerful documentary. I will link to that in the description box below. I recommend everyone check it out. And they are currently working on their second documentary film, which I am so excited about. It's called Earth's Greatest Enemy. And it takes a look at the US war machine and US imperialism and its ties to climate change. I think the links between capitalism, imperialism and climate change are so incredibly salient. And yet the mainstream environmental movement tends to overlook these things or doesn't really have just an adequate analysis of how this all intersects and just how big of a problem it is, like how big of a polluter the Pentagon is in particular, as well as all of its junior partners. So I will link to the website of this new documentary in the description box as well. As we talk about in the podcast, it is entirely donor funded. So if you do have the means, I would highly encourage you to donate either to their Patreon or to the documentary itself. As Abby mentions, they need the funding because they want to do it right. They want to make something that is really uh, quite a high production value, a high production quality so that it can be widely seen and also widely taken seriously. So I think it's incredible, incredible intervention. Uh, before we jump in, I wanted to give a big shout out to Jade. Thank you for your Patreon pledge. If you would like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash total liberation. You can also join our discord through the Patreon and join our bi-monthly community chats, which were always a fantastic time. Uh, you could also give us a one-time tip or donation via PayPal on our website, total liberation podcast.com or just share the episodes with friends and family. That really does go a long way. And also, as always, giving us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. It really, really does help. And uh, I appreciate every, every single one of you who takes the time to do that. I really just love reading those reviews. So with that said, I am very excited to get into the interview. I am here with two people that I just absolutely love and respect the complete hell out of. Abby Martin and Mike Preisner of The Empire Files and then separately of Media Roots and Eyes Left. So how's it going guys?
2: Hey! Great. (laughs) Great.
1: Thank you so much, Maxi. Feelings mutual.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves in a second, but for people who have been longtime listeners of the show, you've definitely heard Abby Martin on the show before, and we talked about her first documentary film, Gossip Fights for Freedom, which, uh, again, I would just highly recommend to everyone. And today we're here to talk about Earth's Greatest Enemy, a film I am incredibly excited for about the U.S. war machine and climate change. So uh, would you guys like to introduce yourselves and a bit about your work?
1: Sure. My name is Abby Martin. I am an anti-imperialist journalist, and I run the Empire Files with my co-host sitting next to me, Mike Preisner. We do an investigative TV series that actually used to be on TV, but it's not any longer, so it's just on YouTube. But it's just looking at everything through the lens of U.S. Empire, because I feel like all the context and framing through the issues that we face today, the most pressing issues, it's completely ahistorical and lacking the most important context at all, which is the U.S. empire with its sprawling expanse of bases around the world and what that is doing to subjugate, you know, tens of millions of people as well as um, accelerating the decay of our society here at home.
2: Yeah, I'm Mike um, I My background is in in media, but in anti-war organizing and creating anti-war propaganda specifically for members of the active duty military and so yeah when um you know 2015 is when we started empire files together and ever since then been the producer there and yeah helping write and edit and do the on the ground stuff that we've done in a few different countries but uh right now yeah just kind of in quarantine trying to uh put out this the same kind of content we did before but also at the same time working on this film which we're going to talk about today which we're excited to talk to you about
0: mm-hmm. yeah that must be super busy yeah your work is just incredible um yeah i can't say enough good stuff about it um i also wanted to shout out the video that you just did with brian becker on ukraine i think it's just fantastic it does such a good do- uh you know deep dive into the context and the history and the major role that the US and NATO have played in this provocation. Um, So yeah, I would encourage everyone to check that out. I'll put it in the description box as well. And feel free to comment on that. It might kind of open up a whole new can of worms. But uh, I thought, you know, bringing that up and, and, you know, what's going on in Ukraine right now is actually kind of a good segue into what we're going to talk about today, because I see so many people out there who are anti-war, but not necessarily anti-imperialist. And just kind of anti-war if they see it on the news, right? But whatever, wherever our attention is drawn, is so often geopolitical. Um, and there's just no real understanding of yeah the history, the role that the U.S. has played in accelerating this this crisis, um, or the fact that the U.S. is bombing Somalia and the U.S. is helping Saudi Arabia bon, bomb Yemen and and helping Israel to massacre Palestinians, and none of that's being covered. Um, and that's obviously not to minimize what's going on and the suffering that's happening in. Ukraine, but I think obviously for people in the West and then in the US and in Canada as well, because we just help the US do whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever it's going to do, like it's on us to actually be really fully um, informed about all of all of what's going on in the full breadth and depth of the US war machine, um, which is not only, you know, bringing us to the brink of nuclear Armageddon time and time again, um, but it's also catapulting us towards climate catastrophe um, at, at such an accelerating rate. Like it's just it's the biggest polluter, which we'll obviously talk about today. So feel free to comment on any of that. Um, but otherwise, I just wanted to ask, you know, about Earth's greatest enemy. Um, you know, how did this project kind of come together, the idea for it? And um, maybe if you could talk a bit about the importance of shedding light on these issues in this current current moment.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, just a couple of quick comments on the Ukraine situation. It is it's devastating. It's it's crazy that this is happening. And it is really important for people in the West, um, you know, who are rightfully outraged watching the news. Of course, I think you just have a visceral opposition, rightfully so, to bombs being dropped and, you know, uh, militarism in general, um, invasions of a country that are unwarranted and illegal, clearly. Um, But it's important as Westerners to understand how we got here and to really take a deep dive, as you're talking about, into the history of how the U.S. and its junior partners have facilitated this and, and essentially set the stage for this very scenario to play out. Putin walked into what the west had set up for so long i mean and that and that's really important for us because we can only do so much like as much as we may oppose what russia's doing all we can do in the countries that are on the west side is pressure our own government to de-escalate and right now you see the opposite thing happening where just bloodthirsty sociopaths um on panel after panel on all these news networks that are essentially sponsored by the very corporations that are profiting from this war Lockheed Martin. I mean, you look at all the stock prices and they've skyrocketed since the war began. That's what this is about. This is a boon for defense contractors. And so you just see everyone drinking from the blood goblet, no one (laughs) taking stock on their role, no accountability, nothing. It's just how can we escalate this further? How can we send hundreds of millions of more dollars and weaponry? And how can we strangle and asphyxiate the entire Russian population? Like, literally, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing this insane pressure campaign that's unmatched, you know, at a time when Palestinians and solidarity activists for Palestine have been calling on international sporting events and, you know, academia and all these institutions to boycott Israel for these flagrant war crimes that are committed time and again in front of our eyes. And it's just scoffed at, laughed at. There's actual laws being passed to prevent those sort of things. So the hypocrisy is stunning. It's really disgusting, especially as you mentioned that there's bombings going on every single day, pretty much perpetrated by the U.S. and its allies. So like I think that we should be outraged, but we need to have outrage that's shared for all people who are living under oppression and bombing and sanctions, because to punish collectively an entire population of people i don't know how many people live in russian but it's a fucking lot and to cut off apple google like payments so these people can't get on trains like my russian friends are actually like saying that their friends and family are like trying to leave because they are so terrified not only of the the prospect of now nuclear war between these two nuclear armed states um, but just the the sanctions are going to hit the hardest to the people who are in. Um, in the most dire straits already in the country. So it's just criminal crimes on top of crimes being committed. And it's absolutely disgraceful to see the way this is playing out and covered in the corporate news.
2: Yeah, I guess I'll just add that. Like you're, though you're totally right to say that, um, you know, let's like there's this, you're battling people who are anti-war, but not anti-imperialist. And so that there's that one side where we have people who are very concerned about what's going on, but think the solution is to look to, the imperialist alliance of nato to send weapons do a no fly zone that there's some kind of a military intervention that can be good and i think that just from the us history alone funding a proxy war funding a, a insurgency a right with a, a heavy right wing factions in it because it's fighting an enemy of the united states has always turned out pretty bad afghanistan latin america uh, Indonesia, it goes, it goes pretty broad. So uh, I think people who are concerned should be uh, calling for for peaceful de-escalation, which the U.S. and NATO, which which is led by the U.S., can do very, can make uh, huge strides to do to, for de-escalation and for a ceasefire. But that's not what they're doing, and and maybe the U.S. is is happy to have a proxy war play out there. I mean, they've been bragging for years about how they are fighting Russia over there by sending weapons to Ukraine. So it's obviously consciously kind of part of their calculation for there to be more war. And and we don't know how that ends. I mean, we know how it ended with 9-11 as a result of funding a proxy war in Afghanistan for many years. So, you know, we, these things are extremely dangerous. And if people are concerned about the escalation and the potential for a bigger clash, everyone should be calling on NATO to pull back, de-escalate. I mean, they got us in this situation in the first place. And that's what we're seeing in particular from the anti-war movement in Europe, people who are in the NATO countries who are kind of more, uh directly in danger of a conflict breaking out because they're very close to Russia, um, they are are taking the lead and saying that NATO needs to go away in addition to opposing the war in, in Ukraine. Um, but then on the other side, we are dealing with people who are anti-imperialists, but are not socialists and don't have another, any other political ideology behind it. And so you get caught in the situation where you have people who, because Russia is you know, technically standing up to imperialism and to the imperialist alliance that you have to uncritically be happy about what's happening. Like, oh, this is great. Like they're poking the U.S. in the eye and they didn't, (laughs) you know, they didn't sit back and let Ukraine just become part of NATO. And that live stream you mentioned on Ukraine, Mexi, like that's one of the things that we wanted to get out too. is that you don't if you hate U.S. imperialism, it doesn't mean you have to like everything a country does that somehow messes up the plans of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we we hope people watch that and and learn something from it because we we definitely did. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and just I mean, just the comment on how, as a result, you see this widespread censorship being applauded. I mean, I was uh, already like 18 years old when 9/11 happened, so I remember. I remember how disturbing that time was. I remember the jingoism and the propaganda and the bloodlust that took over in a really dark way. And I and it's bizarre to see it this heavy when Russia does something to their neighbor, it's like nothing even happened here, but because we're this moral arbiter and we think that we fucking control the world, it's like imposing all of these harsh criminal punishments on Russians and 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 actually censoring Russian media at a time when we could be into a full scale war with Russia. That's actually the time that I want to hear what Russia saying. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want just cons- further consolidation and constriction on the already very limited viewpoints that are allowed.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that um, this whole gambit of censorship that's been accelerating for the last five years is extremely dangerous. And all it does is sanitize our reality from views that we find distasteful or that we don't agree with. And that's a really problematic thing because once you just mm-hmm. purge those ideas, they don't just disappear. They fester. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and it's just a huge problem, especially just having a show on RT America for three years and then seeing the shuttering of RT America and like Europe outright banning RT as much as you may dislike RT as much as it may be a propaganda vehicle for Putin and whatever. I find it very instructful to find out what Chinese media is saying Iranian mm-hmm. TV, mm-hmm. Arabic TV. I mean, that I, it's just outrageous to me that people think that this is the answer um, mm-hmm. to just consolidate the Western, you know, viewpoint. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah then we just get western propaganda <laughs> it's like all right yeah it's propaganda all around but like let's let's try to parse through some of this right so yeah absolutely well said and it makes me happy to hear that in europe the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement is really um you know coming down on nato and really saying that we need to disband nato um i'm hoping to see more of that here <laughs> um but uh but yeah maybe at the end we can kind of circle back if you have any Um, ideas on how people can can organize and connect to different groups here to organize, um, you know, real anti imperialism uh, at home. But yeah, let's let's talk about Earth's greatest enemy. Because uh, yeah, as we said, you know, all of this not only destroys people and just, you know, terrorizes everyone for for hegemony for resources for profit, but it's also just killing our planet, which we need to survive and all of our non-human relations need to survive. Um, so, yeah, talk a bit about how the project, I guess, got off the ground. Um, and uh, again, just the importance of, of shedding light on these things in this this current moment.
2: Yeah, well, this idea to do a film about really Earth's greatest enemy refers to the U.S. military and refers to the fact that the U.S. military, which is the single biggest institutional polluter on the planet, that regardless of any other dramatic changes that other countries and the United States may take towards net zero, which was like the COP26 summit uh, resolution or other measures to save the planet from catastrophic climate change, that none of it will really matter if you really look at the impact of the US military around the world. And so we had this idea to make this into a film um after we read a book called the green zone by a researcher named barry sanders who kind of calculated how much emissions the military puts out. And this is back in 2009. Um, and this is kind of strictly just about emissions. Um, and so we had the idea to do the film a couple of years ago, about a year ago, we started fundraising for it, um, or less than a year ago, we started fundraising for it. We've done a couple of shoots for it so far, which we, we can talk about places that we've traveled to, to start to get some of the footage. But um, just to kind of summarize it, you know, it's a pretty broad topic. Um, which, of course, is hard to do a documentary about a topic that's so big. Um, I think that the important thing for people to know is that, you know, other countries, of course, have militaries that contribute to pollution. No other country has a military like the United States, where it is so huge because it has hundreds, in fact, probably over a thousand bases that are all over the world and not so war as you mentioned like the war in ukraine that's very devastating to the environment for many reasons um like the war in iraq there's places where you just can't have babies without birth defects because there's just pollution from depleted uranium that will be there for a billion years so war of course is extremely devastating to the environment but even if there was no war at all happening anywhere right now and the u.s wasn't bombing anywhere or anything like that the existence of these bases all over the world the logistics of getting the fuel that they burn and all their training operations and just daily existence, the logistics to get them all the fuel, the production of the weapons, like all of these things, and the pollution that comes out of the bases because they're using dangerous chemicals and just burning them off or dumping them in the water. When you look at the full picture and you add all that stuff together, it's just devastating the planet. And this isn't just overseas. I mean, of course, where there's US bases overseas, it takes a huge toll, looking at places like Okinawa, Japan, Jeju Island. All over the globe, wherever there's a U.S. military base, there's high cancer rates and all these horrible things that happen to the population near it. Um, but in the United States, this is the thing too? I mean, there's um, Superfund sites. Refer the EPA designates places that are in need of serious environmental remediation because they're severe dangers to public health. And most Superfund sites in the U.S. most most of them our military bases or former U.S. military bases. Um, So this just really scratches the surface. Of course, nuclear weapons present a great danger to to the world and things like that. So it's fairly broad. And so we're trying to our goal is to kind of piece all of these different myriad things together that that show the vast, deadly environmental impact that the existence of this huge expansive war machine has on the planet and for our survival as a species and other species and try to condense that down into a film that will be like the intervention in the environmental movement. Hmm. The climate change movement is popular right now. Most people care about climate change. Most people want to see strong action on climate change. Most people can probably be moved into political action on climate change. I mean, the demonstration in Scotland at COP26 was, you know, 100,000 people or more and people traveled from all over the world to be there. So the climate movement has so much potential and people's uh, support and participation in the climate movement has so much potential. And we want this film to be an intervention in that movement to say if we're going to be fighting things like big oil and big agribusiness and all of these big polluters, which is important, we can't ignore the elephant in the room, which is the U.S. military, which in the United States anyway, is treated as one of the leaders that can help save the planet from climate change rather than one of the big contributors. So we hope to make an impact on that conversation and make it impossible to ignore the U.S. military and the Pentagon when it comes to the climate movement.
1: Mm -hmm. And I'll just add that there does seem to be, as much as the environment is such a pressing pressing issue today and climate change seems like it's becoming this huge urgent thing that people are really galvanized behind changing. Um, there does seem to be a huge detachment um, there, and a lack of awareness about the role that the U.S. military plays. And I think you mentioned it as you introduced us that the U.S. military is the largest institutional polluter in the world. Um, that if you just point out you know, any oil corporation, any chemical like Monsanto, for example, I mean, the pollution that is put out by the U.S. military on a yearly basis makes all these corporations pale in comparison. And through the structure of U.S. imperialism, it subsidizes and helps prop up the industries that are also, you know, the adjacent biggest polluters. So like Mm -hmm. big oil, you know, big agriculture, all of these things, factory farming, all of this shit is propped up by capitalism. Mm -hmm. And U.S. imperialism, we know that it needs to grow and continue to extract and, you know, resources from all around the world. And so this entire structure is really what the core of this thesis is. And so, you know, that I think was the driving force behind the idea was just like no one's really done this before. And it's so needed. This intervention is needed right now because it's such an urgent thing to tie all this together. Mm -hmm. But also learning the fact that, you know, as we're having these yearly climate change conferences, the fact that the U.S. military made itself exempt back during the first Kyoto negotiations in 1997, the U.S. military lobbied to exempt itself from any climate counting. And because it led the way, all of the junior partners in every single country that participates in these annual negotiations basically followed suit. And they were like, we don't have to count our military emissions either. So now you have this huge gaping hole where you have Biden touting this net zero, all the carbon emissions that are trying to cut in half by 2030. It's all meaningless because they're not counting what the actual numbers are. Mm. And when you extrapolate what the numbers that we know of just oil purchases, it, it it doesn't match up at all with what Mike just outlined, which is the supply chain, not only just the weapon um, production and distribution, not only the infrastructure of these 800 plus bases, probably closer to a thousand, but also like propping up dictatorships. You know, the U.S. props up 75 percent of the world's dictatorships and trains these proxy armies, supplies them with weapons. It goes so big. And like Mike said, every everywhere that there's a base The surrounding environment is used as a dumping ground, literally like the environment is decimated. The people are treated like lab rats. It doesn't just happen overseas. It happens here. You can see it playing out in Red Hill and just in the 900 Superfund sites across the U.S. that have been um, used for military installations. So it's a very dire situation and it's a very urgent thing to expose.
2: Yeah. And just really quickly, um, (laughs) you know, like that, it's many people are shocked to learn. And actually, we talked to a lot of people at the demonstrations in Scotland outside the the climate summit. um, And nobody not only did nobody know that the U.S. military is the biggest institutional polluter, but nobody knew that military emissions, carbon emissions are exempt from the count that all these countries agree to at these international climate summits. So it really means that they're just completely meaningless because they say, "Okay, if we want to save the planet, Here's the minimum we can do. We have to get cut carbon emissions by this much or whatever the net zero thing is. We cut carbon emissions and add by an add enough carbon positive stuff. So it cancels each other out. They're not counting emissions from their militaries. That's because the United States and the US being the biggest one. So it's all just completely fake. And so being able to go there and Abby, some of this was released already, but a lot of it hasn't been because we're saving it for the film of Abby confronting different American politicians and saying, don't you think that U.S. military mission should be counted? Nancy Pelosi, of course, famously said no. Uh, but <laughs> Nancy cortez said, yes, they should be, which was an um, important statement and the first I think we've seen from a U.S. politician acknowledging it. And so, of course, you have the direct pollution of the US military, like from carbon emissions, where these emissions, which we know are a huge problem, are just hidden, not counted. And the US is saying we are not going to acknowledge our carbon emissions from the military at all in any of these international agreements and their mm-hmm. partners are going to do the same thing but then as Abby mentioned you have these kind of indirect ways of pollution where i think pe- a lot of people are familiar with the case of ecuador where chevron dumped massive amounts of oil in the amazon there was a huge lawsuit steven Dozinger was the attorney that won this big lawsuit against chevron for their illegal dumping of oil and then was like arrested and he's on house arrest now because chevron bought off all these judges to like prosecute him for some crime or something. Um, But how did Chevron or its predecessor, Texaco and Shell, how did they get into Ecuador to dump all the oil? Well, the U.S. military overthrew the government and installed this right wing junta that then gave all these contracts over to American oil corporations. And so Mm -hmm. there are these indirect ways also where the U.S. military um paves the way for the mass destruction of the environment that's hidden as well and so when you piece together the direct pollution and then indirect pollution like that where the military really serves as the battering ram so that companies can get in the door in countries where they're not allowed access to to then abide by no environmental regulations whatsoever and then you see situations like ecuador and i mean there's a really long list of similar things
0: Mm Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, it, this is such an urgent, urgent thing. And I'm really, really excited for the intervention that you're making, because you're absolutely right that, I mean, pretty much, I mean, other than the deniers, you know, pretty much everyone right now is concerned about climate change, you know, all the youth, all the students out there are so concerned about climate change. And I really do feel like this intervention will be like, could be really well received and could really start to shift the discourse and um, you know get a lot more people involved in the anti-war, anti-imperialist movement because yeah, it's such a big issue and all of this is so covered up. And if people, I I, I don't know, I feel like if people knew about it, um, there would be a lot more outrage, right? There would be like, hey, what the what the hell is going on here? Um, you know, we're fighting against climate change and none of this is being taken into account, right? Um, so yeah, I just think this is so needed and um, it's a pretty scary time because. Um, you know, we're, we know that we're in this decisive decade in terms of climate change. And at the same time, we also have this kind of like waning U.S. empire that's going to try with all its might to hold on to its its power and its its military prowess around the globe. And it's these things are so connected and we really need to we have to tackle both of these things together. So I'm just really excited for for your film. So I definitely did want to talk about your um your, your trips and kind of what you're uncovering. Maybe like I, you brought up uh, COP26, and so maybe we can also talk about that uh, briefly. Actually, like in my academic work, I've actually sat in on a number of the CBD COPs, which is the Convention on Biological Diversity. Mm-hmm. So there's actually two COPs for people who don't know. There's like the, UNFCC COP, which is the climate change one, which is really gets the most fanfare, and that's the one that we usually pay attention to every couple of years. And there's another one, the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is basically about conserving, you know, the world's, the world's biological diversity, like it sounds. Um, but sitting in on those ones, I mean, for me, and I guess you know they are protested as well. But again, I, I think it gets less fanfare than the climate change ones. But even still, it's really surreal because, you know, all of the parties admit to each other that they haven't met any of the the targets and that things are actually getting wildly worse. Um, And yet, other than a few outliers, you know, nobody is bringing up capitalism. Nobody is bringing up the unsustainability of, you know, the the whole imperialist system. Um, And so it just feels really... I don't know. Yeah, it's just really surreal to be in those meetings and have everyone really acknowledge the the gravity and the weight of the situation we're in, but then seemingly not actually address, like, you know, the main drivers of what's going on. So I guess, you know, talk about what it was like to to be there at COP26. And then, um, yeah, I mean, maybe you, you confronting Nancy Pelosi and AOC, which I know you have uh, released really some videos on as well.
1: You've, you basically described it perfectly, which is, <laughs> Um, It's a bunch of people that get together to not talk about what they all know is the core underlying issue, because I think that's the best way to describe it. It's like a a lot of people were very well intentioned because they purposefully include like line three activists had like a panel there. Like it was really interesting because they really want to appear like they're. Broad and opening the floor to like engage with the activists who are putting their body on the line against oil infrastructure and all of this stuff, and like really pushing forward this notion of uplifting brown, black, and indigenous voices to the front. But really, when it comes down to it, capitalism is like the word that you do not hear. Mm-hmm. We all know that this is an unsustainable system that we are digging our own graves. And in fact, that is what the UN chief in the opening plenary for COP26 said. A direct quote, we are digging our own graves. Well, why the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what yeah. is it about this system <laughs> that we are all going to bury ourselves under? It's just like fantastical thinking that we can just, you know, do these carbon net. Uh, what is it called? The net zero, like trapping carbon and not actually stopping pulling all the carbon out of the ground. It's like just so bizarre that this is their plan. It's like, no, we're just going to offset the carbon that we're going to continue at this accelerated rate, not even slow it down at all because that would hurt profit margins. Instead, we're just going to plant trees. It's like this is fucking mind-blowingly dumb. How is anyone like on board with this? And and so the entire cop atmosphere felt like a trade show. It really felt like a sea of access journalists just going there to get along. I know how it works. I lived in D.C. for four years. Like it is all about access. It's all about securing your position and and basically going all over again. Because if you upset the people who are running COP, you will not get your press credentials approved for the next time. And so it's really about securing and keeping that access for as long as you can. And that means not asking uncomfortable questions. That means not challenging these people, not asking anything that could be real, that could actually pull something out that's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Um, While we were there walking through the main display halls was just like, you know, like oil monarchies, like uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Dubai, all of these giant trade show display halls for these countries that are just super brutal, acting as if they are the pioneers of like alternative energy, right? These huge oil kingdoms (laughs) propped up by the US. It was quite surreal to see. Of course, you don't see any countries like Venezuela, Ecuador. I mean, probably Ecuador now because it's like a puppet, um, but you didn't see anything That wasn't like already uh, a partner of the empire being displayed. They just weren't allowed. You know, of course, Russia and China weren't invited Um, and you're walking through these trade shows and it's just all of these people patting themselves on the back, talking about net zero and talking about this, this identity politics stuff. It was so patronizing and all it was, was just kind of whitewashing the real problem and tokenizing people. From different groups um, and pretending like just putting their voices front and center without actually addressing the root cause of oppression and the structure of, of what all of this is coming from is enough. For example, we went to uh, a panel of U.S. governors who are supposed to be the leading advocates of like climate change justice. Jay Inslee, he was a 2020 presidential candidate who his literally his entire program was climate change advocacy, like justice, We need to act now. This is my one and only issue, like which is okay. Props to you, dude. So we were excited to go to the panel. We're like, okay, great. We're finally going to get some real answers and like actually press these people. It was him and a couple other governors that are from progressive states the entire time. They're talking about how we need to subsidize old electric cars for poor people. Like that. I mean, that's literally it was like insultingly dumb. It was, dude. It was
2: like uh, you get like a 10 percent tax credit yeah. if you're a low income and buy like a used Prius. <laughs> <laughs> like well, the other funny thing about yeah. that is that it's it's you know, Abby said that like they don't talk about the elephant in the room of, of capitalism. And so they acknowledge that there's a climate crisis, but they won't talk about how capitalism is a driver of it. The exact opposite. Their whole the whole theme of COP26 is that companies, corporations yes. are what's going to save us. Yeah. So that panel lab was talking about of like the governors of Oregon and Washington and, and other states that have like progressive governors who are like pro-climate change action. All of them were saying we're very optimistic about the future because we have great companies in our state who have really advanced research and development and are coming up with all these great new technologies. And so for the US anyway, the total they're totally leaning on. The ability of corporations to come up with newfangled um, technologies that are going to save the planet. And that's where all they're putting all of the faith. Um, but another interesting anecdote from COP26 is they have a very strict rule at COP26 uh, that's no naming and shaming, mm-hmm. which yes. means that in any, because you're allowed to have like pre approved like demonstrations where you can like hold up a banner. And you can have like little little protests inside the event, but you have to get everything pre-approved. What's going to be on the signs? What's going to be on the banner? What are you going to say over the megaphone? And if you say the name of a country, you are kicked out and permanently bombed from COP26, mm. uh, banned from COP26, not bombed. Um, but uh, <laughs> if you were to to hold up a banner saying U.S. militarism is the world's biggest polluter, which a group did, they had to cover up. part that said us because that was violating the rule so it just said Uh military militarism is the world's biggest polluter or something and so you literally couldn't have the word like there is a strict rule if you call out any country saudi arabia any of the big polluters you are banned um and so and that's interesting too about how abby said that there's all this emphasis on centering native voices was one of the themes which of course is a, a good thing If it's if it's honest. Um, But if you are a native native organizations who went to COP26 in the past have been banned from COP26 because they took part in protest actions that were not sanctioned by the COP26 leaders. And so and not even in COP, but outside COP, because they got too close to the gates or something at a protest. And so their credentials were revoked from coming back to COP. And so there's a little bit of a, a, a deceit in how they are centering native voices. It's the ones that they approve.
1: Right. And just to Mike's point about these pre-approved protest zones, um, what's fascinating about it is the militarism banner that we saw was like the only one that was even remotely like looked like a real cutting critique of the conference because the other people like a lot of other groups held protests. But because of this kind of. Cynical exploitation of identity politics and just like adopting this woke language sloganeering with like banks and oil corporations. It almost seemed like indistinguishable from like what Wells Fargo's booth said, you know, about like centering women and like all it was like very dystopian because you're like, what the? what is actually happening here like Mm -hmm. this is the same shit that wells fargo said in their booth like it's just like so hard to wrap your mind around that this is where we're at that this is what these people actually are peddling as the solution to our problems is the exact same system that that is driving us to hell um so the governor's conference was actually fascinating because i was like really optimistic well (laughs) not really i mean after i heard their speeches i was like oh this is not good Um, And afterward, I, you know, I I asked a question, of course, about just a yes or no question. Do you think the military should be exempt from these conferences? And Jay Inslee was just like, the military is the answer, basically. I mean, just (laughs) like Mike, they're doing uh, R&D research and development. They are the solution to the climate crisis. They have done this and that, like, basically just parading and applauding the military's work in Washington, where he lives. And after that press conference was over, I went and talked to the other governors that were on the panel. And they they basically did the same thing, just defending the military, refused to a- answer the question, said the military is great. It's the solution to the crisis. So it was really disturbing to see that. And so the next day, I think we kind of knew going into the Pelosi conference that we would get the same answer if we were lucky enough to be called on. It was a huge conference call. There were tons of corporate media journalists there. And i did not think that I would ever get a chance to actually be called on but that's the one time identity politics worked <laughs> in my favor <laughs> one time one and, one and done she was like I need a woman she like got some washington post journalist or whatever who's was like why when are you guys going to pass Build back better And she was just like, but but like very just like circle jerky, and then and then she was like, "Where's a woman? I want a woman." And then she was like, "Maybe I don't." Once I stood up, (laughs) Empire Falls was like, "What is going on? Does she know who I am, or is this like?" That was the best moment. I feel like she does know who you are. I don't know what, unless like (laughs) someone like motioned to her, like no, (laughs) like unless like a handler was like no, no. She was like, "Oh," Uh, but but yeah, I mean, it was just hilarious because not only. Um, did she have Frank Pallone answer for her, which is a New Jersey congressman who basically his answer when I asked, you know, why is it that you keep overseeing this dramatic increase in the Pentagon budget, which is a bipartisan thing and the climate's exempt from these conferences? Like, how could we how could we honestly talk about net zero if these things are just, you know, not being addressed? And Frank Pallone's answer, mind you, Frank Pallone and Nancy Pelosi both receive annual donations to their super PACs from Lockheed Martin, from Bay, from all of these defense corporations, just like most U.S. politicians do. So just keep that in your back pocket. So Frank Pallone goes off on a rant about how, no, 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 we need to actually invest more in the Navy because the oceans are going to rise. Like, it was, like, the most cartoonish, like, kindergarten-y, like, like, uh, we need bigger ships to deal with, like, (laughs) more land, more massive ocean. It was like, what is going on? And then Pelosi picks up where Pallone dropped off, um, and she was just like, yeah, like, we, she, she basically, like, addressed the question, kind of, but just added to that like magical thinking like yeah we're just going to slap some solar panels on our tanks kind of thing mm-hmm. but in another weirdly dark undertone of her answer was basically saying we need the military to stave off and mitigate the worst effects of climate change. What does that mean? That means refugees. Mm-hmm. That means instability around the world. That's really what they're talking about, that we need the military to basically repress the people that are going to be fleeing due to the uninhabitability that climate change is going to cause. And that was very, very dark. And not a lot of people picked up on how disturbing that aspect of the answer was. But I mean, walking away from that, it really says it all. It was a complete and total farce. No one knew what the hell was going on. And it was a waste of probably half a billion dollars right there, just down the drain, this whole cop experience. And it, and it, you know, we're not going to be invited back, but I think that if you're there for access, you're there for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And
2: the, the oil companies had more delegates at COP26 than any single country.
0: Wow. That That does say everything. Yeah. It's, it's so disheartening. Um, and really, really it, yeah, truly dark, um, And it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to, like, maintain your, I I don't know, it's so enraging to see that, to see that all the protests are so um, micromanaged and controlled and that there's no real, um, that it is just a farce. It's just a bunch of, um, you know, oil companies pretending like they're leading the way or whatever. Um, It it starts to just feel so overwhelming, right? Because it's just like, this is what we're up against. (laughs) Like, it's so, Mm -hmm. you know...
2: And like undercover activists, like a lot of these panels that are like youth climate activists that are on these panels, like secretly work for big oil. And they're like on through these front nonprofits and things like that. So a lot of the like delegates to cop that were featured as like climate activists actually were working for like Shell and Chevron and stuff. But through these like this weird apparatus they have. Um, But yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting for the longest time oil companies their strategy for climate change was like funding the research that denied that climate change was happening. And that was really the main strategy. But that's changed. I mean, now that's Mm -hmm. not a possible thing anymore. And so now the strategy is to uh, promote the fact that they are actually the solution to climate change. And so that's why you're Mm going to see that a lot more now going forward is that companies like BP or whatever, with all these commercials showing how they're doing so much to green the planet. Yeah, yeah. A huge oh, just like
0: greenwashing bullshit, that's terrible. Well, yeah, I'm sure you got a lot of uh, interesting footage from that <laughs> for the film. Um, so yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about like some of the travels you've been doing. I know you went to Alaska as well. Um, I'm not sure if you've gone any, anywhere else, but um, yeah, maybe you know some of the, some of the highlights and also the lowlights <laughs> of those those travels and what you're finding out. Um, you know, what are some of the more more shocking and disturbing things that you're uncovering? um as you as you travel the world,
1: absolutely., uh, yeah, I want Mike to talk about the Red Hill situation because mm-hmm. he just he urgently you know that was an urgent situation that he immediately went on the ground for in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll briefly talk about Alaska. A lot of it's um, Alaska was a pretty enlightening experience because going into it, I didn't realize that climate scientists specifically go to study Alaska because it's kind of what they call the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. Um, it warms three times faster than the rest of the planet because of where it is. And and the indigenous community there is like the biggest proportion of indigenous population in, um, of any state in the country. So there's a lot of things that are all compounded that it makes it a really interesting case study and climate scientists can kind of observe what's happening there and extrapolate that this is, you know, this is what's going to happen to the rest of the planet in such and such time. Um, yeah, so it, it, it was pretty interesting to talk to so many climate experts and really just kind of, you know, like I was inundated with um, with magical thinking about climate change my whole life. Like I was affected by the propaganda as well. I guess I didn't realize how dire it was. And I always thought that perhaps maybe I'm thinking of the worst case scenario in like a hyperbolic sense and the fear mongering sense. And maybe it isn't that bad. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. But what you realize after talking to a lot of these scientists is that they actually purposefully put out the most conservative estimates mm-hmm. because they don't want their very hardcore scientific data to be misinterpreted and used for political purposes. So they actually tend to minimize <laughs> their analyses about things like climate change for that exact reason. So it, it that was mind blowing to me. I was just like, okay, so like, this is literally like all, I mean, everything is laid out there. And I mean, they, they try to be as positive as they can. You know, a lot of the climate scientists were just like, yeah, we have about 10 years to turn this around. <laughs> and, um, and you know, I, but a lot of them were just like really calm. Like one guy that we were talking about the permafrost and how, you know, most of Alaska is permafrost and how once that melts, I mean, all the carbon that's captured in the permafrost is just like, like forget about the rest of the world for a second. Like Alaska won't exist like that. Like the ground is so unstable because of this, what was permanently core. That's ice is now thawing at such an exponential rate that like any time, any of these like cataclysmic, climate altering events can happen that aren't even being um, accounted for in the climate data that we see generally, like, because it's just those, it could happen at any time, like the methane burp in the ocean, like those things would completely take already that hockey stick and like, like do like a curveball where it's like going like, like twice as vertically. Like, it's just so crazy to think in that way. Um, but then we met with um, we met with someone who basically, gears her entire life's work to doing FOIAs, trying to find out the impacts of militarism on Alaska. So one disturbing thing about Alaska was just how much the military is revered and how much Alaska this, what we, ref, you know, what we understand Alaska to be as this like pristine, untapped wilderness. And it really has been just used as just a just callously used as a dumping ground by the U.S. military for for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, Saint Lawrence Island. We spoke to an elder Inuit woman there who was talking about a uh, Yupik. I'm sorry, Yupik woman who who's from Saint Lawrence Island who's just talking about this isn't even designated a Superfund site. And when you fly into Fairbanks or Anchorage, you see like all of these like tourist advertisements to go visit st lawrence island and like see how these people live like really like heralding these people as like the most badass people on the planet meanwhile they've just been like poisoned like deliberately poisoned from u.s military dumping all these bases that were left used for a couple years during the cold war or afterward as military outposts. And then they were just left with can- carcinogenic chemicals, all of their food, their sustenance, the salmon that they just used to take directly out of the ocean. It's all toxic. They used to live till they were like 100 years old. And now they're dying at like 50. Like it, it's just the most devastating thing when you realize like native genocide isn't a concept that is obsolete. Like this is something that's a slow motion continuation of the policy of like settler colonials. And that just continues to this day. Mm -hmm. And that was really disturbing too. And just talking to this other woman who's just documenting what the Superfund sites have done, um, what they continue to do to pollute and the PFAS chemical disaster that is now going to be the new environmental crisis that we faced from military dumping and burning of this foam this firefighting foam that's used in war games and munitions testing and all of that. And so there's so many levels that I just, I walked away from that trip just being like, holy shit. Like, and, and another disturbing thing about it is just like seeing the glaciers firsthand. I mean, Alaska has what, like 50,000 or 80,000 glaciers or something. And like the rapidity of, of warming just with our guide who we went with to one of the glaciers and, um, The Matanutska Glacier, and he was like, This is unbelievable. He was like there 10 or 15 years prior, and he was like, This is just unbelievable. Like how much Mm -hmm. this has melted and receded just in the last 10 years, and just kind of envisioning where that's going to go in the coming decades. Um, And the privatization, the private takeover of these lands and parks where you have to go through these private businesses and families to even access some of this landscape is like also very dystopian and Orwellian. And so it was,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it was pretty. Pretty upsetting stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I w- want to plug your, um, your Patreon because I know that you guys did a, a deep dive on this, this topic on your Patreon as a Patreon exclusive podcast. And I was listening to that the other day. And, and yeah, like the privatization thing just really got me. <laughs> like you guys, they, they, yeah. they, they were on a glacier, you know, filming for the, um, for the, the documentary. And they were interrupted by a wedding party of the owner's daughter. Because the owner
2: <laughs> of the glacier. Yeah. The, the glacier owner is literally glacier. owned by like right wing cowboy guy.
0: <laughs> like, what does that mean? That's so. That's, yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah,
2: that's America. You can, you can buy a glacier. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and then make people pay like, you had to pay like $3,000 to yeah. get on there. You know, yep. that's, yep. oh my God. It used
2: to be yeah. a like uh, a state park. Yeah. And then they privatized it. So you have to pay a lot of money to see it. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Just absolutely unbelievable. Um, (laughs) We uh
2: we got some some uh low-key footage of the wedding on the glacier though, which you (laughs) will see in the film. Uh but yeah, we uh we did some sneakiness to to document how wild it was, what was happening.
0: That is great. So yeah, I definitely want to plug your Patreon so everyone can check that out. And you guys do, you know, great podcasts all the time as well. Um, but uh Mike, did you want to talk at all about the Red Hill? Um, Yeah, I mean,
2: sure. I mean, Hawaii, it's just another I mean, this is just a microcosm of like everywhere there's U.S. bases, you see this kind of thing happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But Hawaii is a great example because, you know, this was a place again, like with Ecuador, it was overthrown by the U.S. military. It was a sovereign country. It was recognized by world powers. And the U.S. military saw, you know, everyone knows about Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was like the breadbasket of Oahu. It was, it was all massive, highly advanced, sustainable fisheries for people on the island. It's where all the food came from for all people living on, on Oahu. Uh US general saw Pearl Harbor on Oahu and said, damn, this will be a really good place to park Navy ships. So then we can like wage war against all of the Pacific by parking all our ships here and fueling them up here. So then U.S. Navy went to Hawaii and overthrew the government and said, we're actually this is ours now. And we're going to dredge Pearl Harbor, destroy all the wildlife, all the habitats. And we're just going to park our boats here and dump all the fuel in the water. So that's where the story started. Um, This happened in the late 19th century. Um, And then ever since the entire. Country or you know nation of Hawaii, which was stolen by the U.S. and never legally annexed, and so it's still illegal that the U.S. military is there. It's illegal that it's part of the United States. That it, it was that was never a legal thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but ever since then, the U.S. military just treated it like its playground and like its dump. And so there is, and uh, on Oahu alone, um, over twenty percent of that island is U.S. military bombing ranges, dumping grounds, practice fields, and things like that. So a substantial portion of this pristine habitat is just littered with bombs and dumped fuel and things like that. Um, But this particular crisis that happened is the U.S. military stores all of its fuel for the ships at Pearl Harbor um, in these really old tanks that were built in like 1930. Mm-hmm. And they're completely rotted through. They leak oil all the time. There's like 200 million gallons of fuel that's stored in these tanks, and they just leak out. And it's the fuel tanks are stored right above the freshwater aquifer, which provides 20% of water on the island, which is pretty significant this natural fre- generator of fresh water. And so, whenever it leaks, and there was a big leak recently, and there's been big leaks in the past, it gets into the water, it poisons people, it makes you have to shut down all these wells, and it's a huge catastrophe. And that this is where the story really highlights the role of the U.S. military. So these tanks are obviously terrible. They obviously pose a huge threat to really the future of clean water on Oahu. If one, if there was a big leak, and these have been small, substantial leaks, but small. If there was a big leak, an actual big leak, it would permanently knock out the aquifer forever. And if that aquifer is knocked out forever, then forever on Oahu, you would have water conservation mandates, low pressure showers, water deliveries, all these things that make life extremely difficult when it is this generator of clean water naturally. I mean, we mm-hmm. don't have to do anything; except go in the ground and get the water out. I mean, the, the geology of Hawaii is perfect for generating clean water. Mm-hmm. So it could permanently destroy life on Oahu, which is a pretty big thing. So the Hawaii Board of Water Supply. The yeah. The Hawaii <laughs> Board of Water Supply, Department of Health, the governor of Hawaii, all of them ordered, ordered the Navy. You have this is an official order, you legal order. You mm-hmm. have to take the fuel out of these tanks, at least take the fuel out of the tanks while you figure out a way to fix the tanks to make them stronger. And so the Navy replied by saying, uh, No, we're actually going to take you to court and like sue you for telling us that we have to take this fuel out. It would be such an easy thing. It would be easy for the Navy to defuel the tanks, fix them, or build new ones or whatever. Uh, but they just refuse. And it just shows, like, where is Hawaii's sovereignty? It's not just local people who are demanding it, but the actual elected government, all of the powers that be—the Congress people, the governor, the Department of Water, the Department of Health—all saying you have to do this. And the Navy is just saying, "No, we're the we're the military. We do whatever we want, mm-hmm. um, regardless of the the threat that it poses to public health and really the future, really the future of life on the mm-hmm. island of Hawaii." So I think that is just yeah. a, a really perfect. Uh, just zoomed in look at what how the U.S. military conducts itself in terms of how it just willingly pollutes places for no reason at all. It could easily find ways to not conduct their operations with tons of pollution. But even when there's very reasonable attempts by the people that are poisoned, local community and local officials, they just see it as like, no, our top priority is having a super ready navy to play war games in the ocean all the time which is really mm-hmm. all that they need the fuel for is just to go onto the ocean and blow a bunch of shit up in the ocean for practice Yeah. Uh, so yeah well, and like
0: to threaten china right
2: <laughs> Yeah, right of course. <laughs> that's their that's their uh their watchdog for the Pacific and so that's that's why yeah. Pearl Harbor exists is to dominate that entire region. And so yeah, mm-hmm. that is yeah, a higher totally. priority than everyone living on the island of Oahu, including their own soldiers. I mean, the people that were poisoned by the Red Hill leak, it was all the military. It was all yeah. people living in military housing who are all completely poisoned and they still didn't care. And so that just I think tells you everything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Just so disgusting. Um, I actually want to shout out Silver Spook. He's an Indigenous Hawaiian comrade and an activist, and we did a, a episode with him uh, recently as well. And yeah, he he Great. talks about this a lot. So so yeah, I mean, very shocking. Very, uh, I mean, not I guess not shocking. Very upsetting, <laughs> very disheartening. Uh, all of that. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, you know, what what are you planning next? Um, are you planning to do any more traveling? Um, or I, you know obviously no spoilers if you don't want to give spoilers, but, uh, whatever you want to share about, you know, what, what else are you hoping to to look at and to uncover for the film?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's so many important places to go. Um, mm-hmm. places like Okinawa, Japan, there's a big movement against the construction of U S military bases there. Jeju Island, Korea, very similar thing. It's, uh, it has all of these geoparks, which are internationally recognized, really important, diverse, uh, biodiverse ecosystems. The U S military is building bases there. That's just completely destroying them and like the whole island of of jeju is uh demonstrating against the military construction so we want to go and cover these frontline struggles of course we're constantly raising money for it because we'll be limited in travel by how much we can actually raise to to Mm -hmm. do it Um, but the next trip i think we have planned is you know something that gets left out of this conversation a lot is that the united states is a, a territorial empire and has a lot of territories places like Guam um, that are not have no real rights in Washington, but are just owned by the United States. And Guam is one place that is is next on our list to go because mm-hmm. it doesn't really get attention. The U.S. military has done terrible things there. There's, a of course, a movement against it that isn't often heard. And so that's our, our plan in the short term. And of course, there is up hundreds of places across the United States that are mm-hmm. suffering from the devastating effects of pollution from the bases near them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so EarthsGreatestEnemy.com is where people can go to help this project. Of course, not only the travel that's needed to finish the filming, but then, of course, the editing, graphics, um, all of that, because we really want to make this as high production value as possible so it can reach as many people as possible. We're not going to do this some sort of grassroots production put up on YouTube. This This has to be a proper intervention, meaning it has to be taken seriously and people need to pay attention. And I think that a point that you made earlier is really important to address quickly is that this is such an existential threat, which could be completely paralyzing and really difficult for us to even figure out how to navigate this current moment. And that's why I think this film can shed light and instruct us on how we can do that in our own communities, which is demilitarizing our lives, mm-hmm. our minds and our local communities because that's really the only thing that we can really do i know that we tend to focus on like very big issues that are you know very broad and seemingly like very daunting you know like the u.s empire and it's and how it's doing all this horrific shit around the world in our name but um but it's all—it all impacts every facet of our lives, and that—that's why we can put this issue front and center wherever you are,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: tie it together with the issues that are most impact us directly here, and and let people know that that consciousness is necessary to understand, you know, how all of these things fit together and how it all is underpinned by this exploitative system of of imperialism and and of course capitalism, and um, so really the solution based orientation is is really necessary to guide people through that you too Mm
2: -hmm. can do
1: something about this Mm -hmm. um and and um and we all need to make that effort of course if we want to live in a just and humane world
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important. And thank you for bringing that up. I was going to ask that next of where can people support this? I'll definitely put a link to uh, Earth's Greatest Enemy in the show notes because everyone should go and support uh, monetarily if you can, uh, the projects, because um, I'm so excited about it. I think you're so right. It's so it's so needed right now. Um, and we do really need that solutions focus because otherwise it can just feel so paralyzing to just be like okay well <laughs> these things are so big what what do we do right um so yeah that's that's wonderful um so I'm conscious of your time I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to say about the film um I know a comrade of mine did want me to ask you about uh you know anti-imperialist organizing right now if there's anything you know good you see going on or kind of uh, any advice you can give to people who want to uh organize against the escalation uh, any of that you can touch on and and otherwise maybe just uh I guess, let people know where they can find you and just thank you for coming on the show.
2: (laughs) No, definitely (laughs) happy to. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the organizing against um, U.S. intervention in Ukraine right now, it's it's not as bad, but it it could be kind of comparable to organizing against war right after 9-11, where Mm -hmm. anti-war voices are going to find themselves extremely isolated because while you have a lot of attention and sympathy for what's happening in Ukraine, um, I think a very dominant thing in the mainstream is that the U.S. needs to support it, yeah. meaning arms, funding. So and, and there's not really calls to de-escalate or ceasefire. And there's not really calls to um, prevent what kind of set the stage for it which was the expansion of nato and the belligerence of nato and the threat that 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 poses which is which is the correct demand for us to bring out is that we can oppose the war in ukraine oppose russian russia's actions but also make sure to highlight what our own governments have done and mm-hmm. call on our own governments to pull back and not escalate the situation that may not that may be popular but it also may not be popular right now and mm-hmm. there are definitely large demonstrations that have been happening of people that are, um, you know, and you you see a lot of the, of course the neo-Nazi thing in Ukraine is a bit overplayed in some circles, but it is a very real thing. And so I have seen demonstrations around the country that had large contingents of these far right groups there. Um, but also the, a lot of these demands, like it was when people were supporting protests in Syria and so forth, it's the demand is for no fly zone weapons and things like that. And that's not something anyone's serious about, uh, anti-war organizing can get mixed up in um mm-hmm. but if that is a, a dominant demand right now it, it's going to isolate those of us who want to shift the focus to nato and the united states and demand de-escalation and, and not things that are going to escalate the crisis and it's it, i think the lesson from the post 9-11 era was when people were attacked for saying we should not go to war in afghanistan and everyone's like what are you talking about we're there was just this attack mm-hmm. um over time those voices were vindicated. And over time, people who thought that was absolutely absurd that the anti-war movement was doing that came around and supported uh, or at least admitted that it was right to begin with. Um, And so it's, it's, I think people, my only, I guess, advice is for people not to get discouraged by moments of kind of temporary isolation and alienation from broader sectors of society who may be influenced by different different demands. Um, And so, yeah, but I think that there, I think maybe one of the positive things that could be happening is because there is this kind of like a uh, highly racist uh, reaction to the war and that all these, you know, blonde hair white people are, are being bombed and these pictures are horrible. Like I think that it, it, because that's happening and it's the hypocrisy is being called out and that all of these like images from Palestine are being shared. Like, look, what's happening in Ukraine. This is terrible. It's Palestine. I think it could actually, um, a, a lot of people are pointing out how this is, just gross which it is but i think it might it could have the effect of you know if people the first war they really care about is the war in ukraine that doesn't mean that they're only going to care about the war in ukraine and it opens mm-hmm. up i think new sectors of the population in, in canada and the u.s who are are upset about this and are thinking well where else is this happening that i that i didn't know about and where else is it actually worse that i didn't know about and so i think it, it actually opens up broader sectors of people to be reached with an anti-war message which mm-hmm. i uh I'm encouraged by, and I think is something that we can we can think about in terms of how we strategize how we're going to reach out and organize other people, yeah, I mean, and just
1: like what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, this could be a really great opening for people who feel like, oh I'm really against what's going on, but then they just have no idea what they can do. You know, yeah know, they live in the West and they're just like, well, all I can do is join the chorus of condemnation against Putin. Well, in fact, you can do much more than that and and that's where our you know our role comes in. play where we can say look our governments have actually had a lot to do with this tinderbox and uh, creating the circumstances for this to happen so it's about education and it's about using this moment um for political organizing in a way that can benefit um the anti-imperialist movement as a whole so Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: using internationalism and solidarity with with people in ukraine to do just that so i think it's actually like mike said it's a really It can be a very good opening, even though we're going to face a lot of backlash for people saying, why are you talking about America? Like, yeah, no matter what Russia does, America's right there
0: (laughs) playing. Yeah, no, those are such great points. Yeah. Thank you so much for that insight and just for sharing all of this today. Um, Yeah, just again, just absolutely love your work. Um, Encourage everyone to go check it out. And uh, yeah, just thanks again for coming on. If you want to shout out where people can find you, um, you can do that now.
2: Yeah, well, all our video content is at YouTube.com slash Empire Files. We post a lot of videos there. We also have a podcast, which has some audio from our videos, if you prefer listening to them as audio, but also a lot of podcasts we do that we don't put in a video format. And so any streaming app, you can look up the Empire Files. You'll find our podcast there. And then we have a Patreon which is patreon.com slash And we put on some exclusive content there. So there's some podcasts and stuff you know, about once a month that um, only patrons have access to as a thank you for making all the work possible. None of our videos or anything have ads or are monetized in any way. So 100% of our funding comes from our base of donors who want to see us put out free content without ads on them. And so if you become one of those people, it helps us a lot as well. And that's how the movie is being funded as well and all
1: that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super rad. And that's it. Thank you so much, Maxine. Yeah. We love you. And I, I really miss you. And your work is so crucial and important. And it's an honor to you know, talk to you today. And hopefully we can return the favor very soon.
0: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I love you guys, too. And yeah, just amazing. I can't wait to see what comes out of the video or the documentary. It's going to be fantastic. So yeah, We're, just thanks we again. we
2: see what comes out of it too. We still have no idea <laughs> what it's going to look like. We just know anything. that we, we just know there's a lot of pieces that will somehow come together. Yeah, we'll,
0: we'll do something well, for sure. Given how good your your YouTube is, given how good Fights for Freedom" is, I'm sure it's going to be like absolutely
1: fantastic. So well, we know yeah. the bar is high. So all right, Mexi yes. you Rock, and uh, thank you so much for all Mexi's listeners for supporting her and her work. <laughs> You're in the right place.
0: Thank you.